Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 175, Stop Working on Your Game and Publish It. Presented by Jason Walters, J.R. Honeycutt, Brennan Taylor, and Jim Dagg. stuff in the works here that we've been testing and, and stuff that I've been working on for probably longer than I should, which is the topic of this panel. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, Jim Dagg. My imprint is Saddle Shaped Games. Uh, I've released uh, two games. One is Just Got Real, which is rules like action movie role playing. Uh, the other is a game in a charity bundle for the ACLU called Two Weeks uh, by Dan Enders. Uh, my experience is primarily in the self-publishing side of the business. Uh, my name's Jason. My name's... Is it on? That's not on. That's okay, I speak loudly. My name's Jason Walters. Uh, I am the general manager of Indie Press Revolution, uh, the small press uh, role-playing game distributorship. And Brennan is actually being very modest. Fifteen years ago, uh, Brennan founded Indie Press Revolution. Uh, to solve many of the problems involved in getting alternative and small press role-playing games into stores. So he knows a thing or two. I do. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this, is a, this panel is about uh, stop working on your game and just publish it. And uh, I will say that I am 100% guilty of not just publishing my games. Uh, I have two games that we were testing here that have been under work for about three years and probably should have been finished about a year ago. But uh, that does give me some insights, I think, onto you know, what the problems are and, and how you might want to uh, deal with them. And uh, we'll start, I think we can start with sort of an overview of what our thoughts are on this. Uh, each of us will, will uh, share that. And then uh, after that, um, we'll go into uh, audience questions. We have a, as, as a, as Jason was saying, uh, I worked for you. <laughs> I'm like, I got a Jim and I got a Jason. Which one is it? Uh, <laughs> was saying, uh, uh, we have a small audience, so I think we can uh, do a little, uh, you know, we, I don't think we can take a lot of questions. Um, so, do you want to start us off, Jason? Yeah, um, so I'm going to stick to my own area of expertise, which is role playing games. I know a little about other things, but, I, but they're not my area of. of of really competency. So, um, if any of you are designing or have been designing for a while and working on and playtesting and thinking about your role-playing game, um, I would advise past a certain point just to go ahead and publish it. Now, I, I probably wouldn't give the same advice for board and card games, but as we were discussing outside before we came in, they're not the two audiences aren't really equivalent in what they expect from a product. 
Um, so if you are a fan, if you are a group of people who really love, for example, uh, games like, um, what would be a good example? Uh, on the role playing or the board games? No, board games. Um, like, uh, what's, what's the one where you play against the board with all the, inf- the like you're keeping like Pandemic? Pandemic. Pandemic. If you love games like Pandemic, thank you, having a mental lapse. And I know there's a bunch of games like that. Um, and it has, a des- it has a core design flaw. You're going to be really angry because you went into this expecting a, a, a perfect game that's balanced, that you could all play, and that there wouldn't be any problems in. The role-playing game audience doesn't have quite the same expectation. Um, many people buy role-playing game books because they want to mine ideas for their ideas. Anyhow, a surprisingly large number think, oh, look, this book contains some really neat stuff that I, that I care about and that I'm never going to play this, but I really want to read it and see what interesting ideas are in it. Um, another group, another person will buy it. Again, this is, would be a strange thing to say 20 years ago, but for the literary value. There are a lot of people that consider it to be a literary genre and collect role-playing game books because they enjoy reading them as literature. Those people that buy a book for the explicit purpose of, of playing it not only don't go in with the idea that there won't be any rules, knowing there'll be rules they don't like, more or less, but not thinking there won't be, often finding rules problems to be amusing and giving the opportunity to correct them or make house rules. or. Uh, Yeah, their expectations are just generally different as a crowd. So if you're holding off on a game you've been working on for years and and testing and bringing to shows and playing with your friends and everybody tells you they love it, but you're like, ah, but the the resolution mechanic about use of physical strength or or the, the interaction mechanic under certain situations when people are trying to express their emotions, it's just not quite right. Just publish it. After it's out there, you'll have hundreds thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of people also thinking about the same problem, all of whom are very bright and capable, thinking about the same problem you've been thinking about. About your second edition, maybe a lot of it will be sorted out. Um, so uh, I can certainly speak from my side of the, uh, you know, as a designer of small press games, but I also want to echo what Jason was saying in terms of literary value. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the game Kill Puppies for Satan. So, short version, that game is practically unplayable. Um, Its entire plot is you are a person who worships Satan, and because if you do really bad, terrible things like kill people, uh, people are going to pray to God for help. Instead, you commit small sins, like killing puppies and doing other, you know, minor acts of of vengeance. (laughs) That, of course, then cause you to experience grief, which leads you into a death spiral, and it exposes the concept that the, you know, stereotypical Satanist that you see in a chick tract is not an identity that really can exist. Um, So that is an example of a game that pretty much solely sells itself on literary value. You can ostensibly play it, but that's not the point. Um, So from where I stand, I had, a, I had a product that I was working on for the better part of five years that was originally one shot and then, which was you know, every designer's first game of a this game can do everything game. Uh, no, no I can't. Uh, it eventually evolved into Measure of a Badass, which was my first hack at an action movie RPG, which I then polished for you know, two, three, four, five years and realized, okay, well I basically have two, two choices at this point. 
Uh, I can keep polishing this forever, never get it in front of anybody, never get any feedback, and never be able to grow as a designer or to have anyone know who I am, or I can publish it, or actually I ended up taking a third option, filing the serial numbers off and just printing a small version of a variant of it called Just Got Real. Um, so its purpose as one of my first games was not primarily to make money because, again, no one knew who I was, I had no contacts, there was no way that that was going to accomplish anything, but to get a game out there to be a conversation piece that I could point to. Um, its primary purpose is as a, as, as a marketing tool. Okay. Done? Uh, for now. Okay. Um, and then sort of from the close to mid-tier publishing. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if I would call myself mid-tier, but uh, certainly a little bigger than the uh, solo shop, uh, single person, you know, single person designer only publishing their own games. Right. Uh, I do publish games from other folks too. And so that means that I have to work with a number of products all at the same time. And uh, making sure that they don't languish in development for ever and ever and ever is definitely an important part of your process. Uh, if you don't, if you aren't releasing things, people are going to start not really, you know, not paying attention to your company. They're going to not realize that you're even still around necessarily. And after a while, you know, all games have a uh, marketing lifetime, and eventually they'll start to you know, tail off. And if you don't have something new to come out to reinterest people in games that you've already got out there, or a, a new game that will uh, bring people back to your uh, to your product. You know, you'll eventually just be subsisting on uh, you know scraps from a long tail. Um, so, from a purely economic standpoint, it makes uh, a lot of sense to you know get that game to the end of its development cycle. Um, I do have a, uh, a habit of probably working on role-playing games a little bit longer than I need to, because uh, as Jason was pointing out, uh, you know, a lot of role-playing a lot of the role-playing audience is a lot more forgiving uh, of, of minor flaws, certainly. Um, and I am a perfectionist. I think a lot of uh, game designers are perfectionists, or at least they, they think that their stuff isn't good enough to, uh, to get out there at this point and that they want to keep working and working and working, trying to, like you were saying, polish and polish and mm -hmm. polish, till finally you have a really shiny thing that no one's seen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but... Uh, the other thing is, uh, if, if you're talking uh, uh, card or, or board games, uh, I think if you've been working on it for two years, for three years, and it's still not ready, uh, it may be time to you know, just step away and do something else, yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, the, you can't work on something forever. You know, you've got to... May, may I riff off that yeah. for a moment? Some, some things just, they, 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 don't, they don't come together. That, that happens, too, when you're a designer. Uh, I, I've, I've written and published a fair amount of role-playing games myself, and, and I, had a, I had a project that, was, uh, that, that seemed really promising and hilarious, and uh, it, was a, it was a game in which you played uh, like the director. It was a role-playing game where you played the, the characters and the director from like a classic 80s slasher film, and there were all sorts of charts and tables to randomly uh, generate what sorts of things you would have and how the plot would work and there was a lot of discussions from critical uh, sort of uh, scholastic thinking about who the final girl is and what it all means in society and the psychology of it and it completely didn't work and I ground away at it for years and finally I was like this this idea is not going to bear fruit 
So sometimes it's a, it's, it's a good idea, but when you work it out to its logical conclusion, it just never gets where you want it to go. And it's, it's certainly time to walk away. I don't have an exact time. But, but think about how valuable your time is. And, and everyone's time is very valuable. It's really all you have in life is your time. So if it starts, if it's been taking up lots of your time for a long period of time with no real payback, even to you personally, time, time to drop it probably. Um, and actually, uh, that and uh, Brennan's comment about the economics of the work kind of uh, comes into another thing. Um, there was a recent uh, video that I encountered by Hank Green, who's a you know popular YouTube educator uh, vlogger, um, and he is someone who puts out a lot of videos, like ten or more videos a week across his different projects. Um, he says the secret to his productivity is finish the thing 80% of the way to as good as you can get it. And the rationale behind that is, you know, let's say, you know, this is the circle, right? It's almost like a bullseye where, you know, the closer you get to the center, the more ostensibly done your thing is. Well, here's the problem, right? The best, the best thing that you can possibly produce, if you could perfectly execute your idea um, and you nail that bullseye, the problem is that there's not just one bullseye. There's a bullseye for every single customer you have. What you want out of a product and what you want out of a product certainly overlap, but your perfect and your perfect, even for the same product, certainly will not be in the same place. So, you know, by executing something perfect for this gentleman, you may not, you know, really like it at all. So I just aggregate that, right? Try to hit as close to the center of the area as I can. And then once I do that, once I get to that 80% point, you start ending up in the Pareto principle where uh, you're putting in a lot, lot, lot of work. You know, it just, the curve goes up, you know, cost to benefit. And you're going to be spending a lot of your resources and a lot of your time wasting your time perfecting something because as you get it closer to one audience, you're going to drift away from another. So uh, effectively, the benefit for your work ends up being zero. So better to just get it out there. Yeah, the, the saying that, it, that goes along with it is the, the perfect is the enemy of the done. Yeah, and we're not like pediatric cardiologists here. Right, yeah, no you one's going to die. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the, 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 the end result of having it not be absolutely perfect is, is not so bad. Right, so. And, and sometimes you've got to say, yeah, this is good enough, uh, it is ready, and, and, and end it. And uh, I do think, you know, the, the imposter syndrome thing that you mentioned earlier does play into it a little bit because a lot of times people think that, you know, especially for their first product, that it's gotta be absolutely perfect because it's your debut. Well, guess what? You're gonna learn things as you do, as you progress through your game design. And as a, as a first product, you're never gonna think that's your best one. So uh, get that sucker out there, get people uh, playing it, and then move on to the next project because you're gonna have learned so much and your next one will be even better. Yeah, you're, you're gonna mess up uh, at points in your first project because you don't know what you don't know. Um, well said. So by uh, getting it out there, warts and all, you know, people will find the warts, people will pick up the warts, people will tell you what, your, what the problems with the work are, but you know what you do with that information is put that toward your next product and make that even better. Absolutely. So do we want to open up Yeah, let's, let's take some questions. Anyone? Yeah. Sir. Lot of 
applications and stuff. At what point do you determine that the amount of effort you put into building onto your original published product becomes a new product in and of itself? Five to ten years. Absolutely, yeah, that's the, definitely the lifespan of a game product, so yeah, uh, you're definitely, I would honestly put that way down at the lower end of the range, three to five years. Well, I, it would depend. Yeah, it does depend. It, it does depend. Um, well, there's some stuff that's got long legs, you know, like some of the classic board games, but yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm always thinking of role-playing games, so yeah. sorry. Um, that's right. if, are we talking about role-playing games specifically or something else? So. Um, you know, there's a lot of avenues available to you all that really weren't here 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so you can, you can finish your game, run a, run a Kickstarter project if you like, or if you have funding, do it yourself. Uh, get it out in the various ways you, you get things out into sales. Uh, sales. And, um, you know, you really only have to print maybe, maybe a couple hundred, maybe 500, maybe 1,000. You're not locked into a situation where you're like, I have to print 10,000 of these. Um, in, in which case, if you've got a bunch of them sitting around in a warehouse or in your home or something, you're constantly going to be two years later looking, looking at it and saying, ah, I really wish I changed X, Y, and Z, but there's still 400 copies sitting here in, in my garage that I haven't sold yet. So um, we're in a good place for, for you because you can kind of print a lower amount and still have it work economically. There are exceptions to this, but but generally. Uh, and if you want to do a revision in three years, sure, you already um, sold out of Mortal Coil. For yeah. example, the one of Brenda's and, and, and I did, do a, I did in fact, do a revision, and I've done and I've done revised versions of several games. Yeah. Um, and usually, when the you know the sales have started to slow down, is a good time to do that. Um, Mortal Coil I actually revised because I was getting feedback that there were people who were confused and had a difficult time with it. So I actually updated it for, uh, you know, to help with those flaws that were in Mortal Coil to begin with. And that was my second game. So it was clearly, you know, it was still, I was still developing as a game designer. And my first uh, publication of it wasn't, uh, wasn't as good as it could have been. But the revised version, uh, I, you know, uh, what I did is I went ahead and released all of the revisions as a free-to-download PDF for everybody who had gotten the first edition and then went ahead and, and published the revised edition. And people bought the revised edition anyway, even if they already had the first edition. You're, so. you're, the cover sold it for me. It was yeah. like, oh, I look at that. It's, it's, uh, it's like Vampire meets uh, Tom Waits song. Yeah. That's good. Absolutely. I like that. I want that more than Vampire. Yeah. So, um, um, and what happened to me with Fate, uh, with Fate is that they updated their system to Fate Core, and so I had a Fate game out. Bulldogs was a Fate game, and it was out. And when they updated to Fate Core, all my fans started telling me they wanted a Fate Core version. So in that case, I was like, yeah, sure. You want to buy the game twice, I'm happy to sell it to you two times. So <laughs> I was involved in one of the most mother of all, probably ill-advised, it wasn't a commercial failure, uh, ill-advised new editions of, of, a, of a major role-playing game ever, which was the Hero System 6th edition. Uh, and uh, really, 5th edition was a tremendous seller, very popular. And after 10 years went by, we'd accrued a lot of data from fans and uh, from our own play, and it seemed like time for a, a, a revision. Uh, but on the other hand, you had this product, it had already been revised once with minor revisions and reprinted to the tune of 10,000 copies and sold through. And we reached the pivotal point of, do we 
change it enough to make it a new game and thus justify new printings of a full-color hardcover book? Um, or do we stay with the old book, which worked so well, and we chose to do a major revision, major re-release? And it did not recapture, really, the commercial success of the previous edition. So um, I guess my long-winded point is don't, don't feel obligated. I mean, man, man, don't, if it's working and people are playing it, people are buying it, uh, and it seems popular, uh, print, print some more of the one you've already made. And I did have a question. So you were talking about doing incremental revisions. Are you talking about it like an electronic product or? Yeah, that can get a lot fuzzier because it's, you can you can do like you can make small changes to make a release, make more changes, make a release. Yeah, uh, I would say at a certain point when you built up all these layers of changes, and presumably you've got it up on one bookshelf, and you're you're adding more files, and you're making them available to the previous purchasers. Once you've done that, I don't know, five, ten times. Yeah, maybe you've got it's a, time to probably think of got a new, a new, new, new edition. Yeah. yeah, you've done the right thing morally. Uh, I mean, you know, you you're you're you're, you're, you're good. Um, but yeah, if you reach sort of a critical mass, and only you know, know what that is, or you and your fans, if you're talking back and forth, then, then it's time to pull the trigger and do a, a new edition. You have a question? It's maybe a little bit of an annoying question, but is there a rule of thumb or common wisdom for how you adjust your timeline expectations based on your time constraints as like a very busy amateur and busy in the rest of your life? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, it depends on what you want out of the experience. Um, so if you're a very busy person, presumably, I don't know anything about you, but presumably you're busy with work to a large extent. So maybe this isn't a commercial thing for you. So it, I'll just for hypothetically, for a say, say an intellectual exercise, take the, take the money out of it, take the commercial part out of it. Um, just keep, keep working. Throw it up on a blog. Let people see it. Let people have it. Uh, give it away, or don't don't get don't maybe don't give it away in the sense of making it free on you know Paizo or something like that. But make it free on your own blog, which you direct attention to. Um, keep keep doing your thing, and maybe ask people reading it to let to let you know when you've reached that point. Say, I, look, I love this. I want to do it, but I, I got maybe four hours a week. It's what I got. Um, and my even gaming, I'm so busy. Maybe once a month, can I go play this with people? Um, do your best to document it really thoroughly. Put it up there, and uh, you'll you'll know. It'll just you'll happen. People reading it'll say, "Hey, man, you should you should just go ahead," and you'll go, "Yeah, yeah maybe and, I should." And what you're doing with that is you're building your personal brand as a designer, right? Um, doing stuff for free is actually a really great way to start, because if you if you're producing quality stuff that people are interested in, then they're going to start following you, and then when you're ready to switch over to commercial stuff. Um, you've got an audience already. And then, so. then maybe you could go with something like Patreon 
and bypass everyone like me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> bypass me. I mean, don't bypass me. Send me some physical books. I'll sell them. Yeah, there's actually but, a guy here who um, has got a game called uh, Nahual, which is a, uh, a uh, Mexican angel hunters game. Oh, that's basically, great. Uh, using uh, Mayan uh, mythology. And uh, I've been following his Patreon for like three years as he's started and in, in, was gradually posting over, you know, over time until now he has a final product. So it, it, that's, that's definitely a method that you could use. You're, you, you, will, you will actually see that a lot. I've spoken to a number of designers and I've certainly seen a number of them. Uh, Jeff Stormer, for example, was working on a game called, uh, it was Mission Accomplished, basically. Um, so he played through the game, he released the first version on Twitter, and he said, hey, it's done. And people said, no, that's actually three games, and here's the thing we found the most interesting. And it was that phase at the end where you're throwing each other under the bus in the mission report and trying to make yourself look good. And he looked at it and said, yeah, that actually makes sense. So that actually drove the direction of the final product. Um, so by getting it in front of people for free, like as a preview version, um, of course, that's a, marketing, that's a marketing tool as well, but it also will help you guide your development because you effectively have, you know, dozens, hundreds of beta testers that you're putting it in front of. Can I, can I touch on Patreon again for a moment? Sure, go for um, it. So, to a certain extent, I'm just, I'm just reiterating something I, I heard at a panel two days ago, but, but I've been thinking about it, and I was thinking about it before I took the panel. You really, there are some really, for game designers, there are really some opportunities to bypass the entire system that separates designer from consumer that really just, they just weren't even here a fairly brief period of time ago. And it really seems to me that the more you can narrow that space, the better off you are. And there seems to legitimately be, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't like build a fan base on Patreon. You have to build it outside and then bring it over with you. But really, if you were to do your development in public and talk about who you are, what's going on in your life, be a person while you're developing it, let people know like the little things, unless you're a very, very private person, right? Um, the little things, you know, oh, I, did this, I was thinking about this or this happened in my life or I had this difficulty, because that makes you relatable, because right? people are people and they like, they like these things. When you eventually move to something like Patreon or Kickstarter, um, these people will move sort of with you. And maybe your, your creative process feeds in publicly into your final product, if that makes any sense. Yes. And, they, and then you'll have someone to tell you, right? It's time. Yeah. Or a lot of someone's maybe. Yeah, you'll get a lot of people saying, yeah, when, is, when am I going to be able to see the final game? Yeah, so, it's time. Yeah, that means it's time to... You, you are going to see throughout that process, because you're doing this, because you're in public, you effectively establish your real name as an individual designer, as a brand. So that becomes a valuable marketing tool. Yeah, right. absolutely. Perhaps in some respects. Um, I mean, I've always been more comfortable personally operating as part of, a, part of a business under which there is a name and a logo and so forth, and not as, as me, as a brand. Um, but that's my personal preference. Uh, for a lot of people, really, it's far more valuable for you to be your own brand. I mean, in the long term, financially, thinking about quitting your day job and doing something you love for less money but enough money, which is really what we're talking about for game designers. Um, the more every dollar that's spent sort of comes to you and less percentage points are taken off, the, the, the closer you'll get to that. Mm -hmm. right? And some of the stuff that's happening right now 
probably am looking at a 21st century economic model from a 20th century mindset to a certain extent. The Patreon isn't about you selling them something. They just like you, right? Um, but that can actually, uh, I'm sorry. I, no, 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 go ahead. There's act that could actually go both ways. So on one hand, yes, that's exactly right. You are effectively, I mean, that's, that's kind of the point of Patreon is people are, patr are, are patrons of you, right? Um, but a lot of the game designer Patreons I've seen, uh, you know, people will periodically publish those small updates, those small games, those things like that. So it almost becomes your distribution channel. It is a distribution yeah. channel, really. All right, do we have any more questions? Do? Yeah. So, what we said, hum. Yeah, go ahead. I follow to that. Uh, is there a, can you think of a, a way other than digitizing to make that apply well to uh, non RPGs, not like to card games? Yeah, sure. For, for like Patreon, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, people can print cards out. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not a problem. In the, in, I would say in the next. I, when do you think everyone will have a home 3D printer? I don't have one, but I know a lot of people do. How, how long do you think? Five years? Ten uh, years? Probably ten years. Ten years? In ten years, you can do that with board games. Yeah. You just send them the package, and they'll print out the pieces. And but, you can uh, send them the images, they can print out the map. I would say right, right now, I think, you know, if you're going to be doing physical stuff, that does become a bit more prohibitive for those incremental updates, right, if you're doing board card games. Um, Card games, not so much. Board games, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, and, yes and no, uh, because if you're keeping your fans tightly in the loop, you can, I mean, really the updates are information, right? They're right. not new playing pieces or something. Yeah. So you keep them in the loop on, on maybe you let them keep other, each other in the loop on things they've done with your game. Now that's a really, uh, you know, uh, if, if you go over to uh, like herogames.com, you'll see thousands of really cranky people constantly telling each other uh, each other about what the right way is to change all the rules and that their way is wrong and all these other sorts of things. It goes on like, like eternally. So if you can build a, 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 a fan group that talks to each other, that's also great. Yeah. Printon, go ahead. I was just going to ask, uh, so are you specifically working on card or uh, board yeah, game? Card game. Okay. Yeah, because I think that while print and play isn't exactly the most optimal way to deal with it, it is certainly, I mean, like, a, a optimal experience as a consumer, I would say, right? Uh, it is certainly a way to, to do it as a, when you're just starting out and when you're uh, dealing with these, uh, uh, like, smaller scale updates, like we were talking about with Patreon. Or, or, or you could do it as a hostage model, and when you reach a certain level right. of funding, you do it through one bookshelf, which right. drive through cards. drive through RPG, drive like so, RPG now, drive through cards, and you send them all one individually because you've reached that threshold. They all get a yeah. physical thing. There's so the hostage model is a little bit like a, a Kickstarter or a uh, you know or one of the other crowdfunding sites. But what you're doing is you just basically are setting a uh, a, a, po a point at which you will be get, you will uh, produce something. You know, a point at which the money that's accumulated is enough that you will produce something, and uh, you continually plug that and get people, uh, you know, and get people to come and look at your stuff, and and uh, eventually you'll you'll earn enough money to actually produce the uh, the print version. Yeah. And uh, if you are, if if you're not, if your tastes aren't too grand, right? If you just have a deck of cards and that is your game, um, 
the a uh, couple of ways you could consider releasing that as a as a in a small press form would be you know drive through cards which if you have a patreon you're bringing in this money you've done the hostage model uh, you can really effectively release the product at cost uh, either only to your patrons who just you know, get a coupon code to print it out and get their deck for three bucks or whatever um, or you and everyone else has to pay full price or opt to re, or opt to release the game at cost to everyone and make no money yourself. Um, just whatever makes more sense. And you wouldn't sense. care because you're already being supported on Patreon. Exactly. So right. it doesn't cost you anything. You, you're, you're making the money. Yeah. Yeah, sir. From a production standpoint, copyright, trademark, is been Mark, could you repeat that? Copyright, trademark, is been um, I don't find it has been number and, and, and useful at all for Great. electronic product. I don't use them for my electronic products. I do use them obviously on physical products. Uh, I, I, the only I, I have a somewhat different take on that. I do use ISBNs on electronic products, but I don't use different ones from the physical product. I still Even, identify the electronic product by the same ISBN. Yeah, you're technically not supposed to do that. Eh, no one's ever called me on <laughs> yeah, it. Right. So if you go print, you recommend ISBN. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you want a retailer to sell it, then yes. Well, unless you're selling through us, in which case many of the retailers simply assume they're getting something made by a quasi, like a newcomer or a quasi-amateur, and they don't care. Yeah. But we're kind of alone in distributorship with retailers that will make that sort of leap. Right. So. And there are ways to get um, ISBNs that are a little less expensive if you have, um, say, uh, if you've joined up with other publishers under a joint label, you can buy them in bulk. And that's something that is. Uh, I'll sell you useful. some, right? No, really. Uh, yeah, you IPR, bought tons of. Like, yes, IPR bought some that you can actually, if you if your game gets picked up by IPR, they can provide you an yeah. ISBN. Yeah. 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 From. I, I I personally am am lucky because I got all mine in the '90s when they gave me like a hundred for free. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'll run out of them eventually, though, and then I'll cry. <laughs> So there's there's ways to overcome that. It's not it's not prohibitive. It, yeah, the, and and I because obviously buying a ten pack for two hundred and fifty dollars is a lot often for somebody who's just starting out. Um, you may not even ever release ten products, for example. Yeah, yeah. Or or you know, you may you may be a small enough scale you don't actually need one like uh, like Jason was saying. And that that's actually been my experience as uh, at least where I stand. I have print-on-demand, I have a few small retailers I work with, but uh, none of them have batted an eye at the fact that I don't have an ISBN. Um, and then to further expand on the original question, uh, trademark, I don't find particularly, uh, I don't really do a lot, awful lot with that. I trademark my, lo my logo. If right. you have a truly, like, like I keep, I, just by way of transparency, I and keep I referring to the Hero System any of them, because I, I run that company as well. Yeah. Um, so it's a large part of my knowledge base. Um, if you have a really distinctive, I didn't mean to talk over you, Brian, I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah. If you have, a, like, a rule set that in and of itself is a product with value, like real value, you might want to trademark your rule set. Or copyright your rule set. Copyright is yeah, what copyright. you'd have to do for your rule yeah. set. Trademark is a little different. Yeah, trademark no, is for titles. So I misspoke. Yeah, and uh, in logos, I trademark my logo because it's a it's a literal trademark. Um, you might want to trademark the name of your game, but that's also often difficult. Uh, but you can put a TM after anything. Uh, it's it's it doesn't cost any money. You, it's the registered trademark that costs money, and those I think are totally not worth it because they're very very expensive. 
Um, is it like patenting? It's like patenting. it's literally thousands of dollars yeah. to register a trademark. Um, you ever you ever seen that product that says patent pending? Like lots of them. That's because patents are so expensive, and once you file the patent, you have to file the plans, and everyone knows how you made your thing. So. Yeah. Um, but then, then copyright, uh, yeah, absolutely copyright your stuff. That, uh, but think about a license that makes sense for you, or right? or don't. Yeah, or, or I would say, copyright it in with Creative Commons if you're going to try and make it public or uh, the open game license. But I would definitely put some rules on it um, because those kinds of things, the the Creative Commons uh, copyright rules are set up for people who want to have their stuff shared. But it's all about. Um, uh, passing attribution along so that when somebody reprints your stuff they they, they say that it's yours um, which gives you some legal basis if somebody steals your things and is publishing them under their own name which doesn't I, I've never had that happen to me but it's always good to have at least some protection in case it does and right. you, you bring up Creative Commons one of the things that uh, I actually stumbled on uh, when I was first investigating Creative Commons is uh, there are various permission levels you can set, uh, attribution, share alike so people can't modify it, and uh, non-commercial so they can't sell it. Um, if you have a very restrictive Creative Commons license, like a you know, uh, no commercial license, there is nothing saying that you cannot subsequently relinquish some of those rights by way of a deal. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I like your thing, I'd like to pay you blah dollars, to be able to release a hack or an edit or a uh, you know a setting or something like that, the fact that you've released it as a Creative Commons no commercial license does not stop you from making that deal separately. I wouldn't go any farther than attribution, because because in role playing games, imitation is truly the sincerest compliment anyone can pay you. Um, and you know yeah. we're all here. We're all we all have our own ideas, right? Uh, I got a million ideas that I'm never going to be able to get to because I just don't have the time. Yeah. Stealing other people's stuff is just not worth my time. <laughs> so, any 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 more questions? Any more questions about finishing yes. products? Actually, yeah. which was the original. <laughs> you had mentioned that uh, card and board game players are much more specific about the rules being perfect. Yes. Um, how would you gauge how to time frame how long you spend making that balance? Uh, I would I would get as many people involved in the process as you can. It, like the more you publicly design the game, and the more you can get people, all sorts of intelligent, interested people from around the world interested, um, uh, that you'll get creative feedback, and creative feedback can let you make an informed decision on that. And the term balance for me may not mean the same thing as it does for everyone else. I mean, ostensibly balance means everyone has an equal chance to win. To me, I feel like that uh, might be a little bit of a fool's errand in certain points, like, you know, especially if you only have so much time. Uh, what I prefer to do is uh, make sure that everyone who's playing the game feels equally awesome, right? Yeah, that's if, a good criteria. If, I, uh, if you balance for fun, uh, you will probably not need as much time and you'll probably get as positive a response if you try to balance to make everyone equal. So you don't go down the rabbit hole of making everything the same and now none of the characters, options, what have you, feel any different. Yeah, and then for board and card games it's a little different obviously, um, but extensive and uh, rapid playtesting is probably good. Yes. Uh, and there are a number of playtest groups out there. Um, if you don't have one in your area, like try to start one, right? I, I, I have. Yeah. I have like a good group of, of 20 or 30 people that I test 
That's excellent. What, yeah. Once once you've had extensive testing with them, again, what Brennan said, go find a group of people who don't know you and have no personal attachment to you, yeah, who are not your friends, and then have them tear into it. Yeah, my yeah. next step is getting to the printed rule book so I can start doing blind tests and stuff like that. Just Absolutely. Like, okay, yeah. Right. If you and I are friends, it's very hard for me to, you to say, for me to say, this is tragically flawed, man. I know you've been at it for years. I'm going to say, oh, it's, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. So, nice but if I don't know you, I'm like, hey, let me give you my my harsh advice. You don't know all my friends. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so long as they're honest, that's yeah, that's yeah. actually excellent for playtesting. So. But yeah, it absolutely never hurts to get blind playtests with new groups. Yeah. All right. Yes. Tom. All right. Um, so I have game. You know it's done. Yes. Um, maybe because I originally got quotes from a more expensive uh, company. Um, but I tried to make something cheaper first. And then that failed to fund. So I'm not sure what I should continue on. I'm working on the game and failed. I have to give it done. So should I try? Should I try to re with the one that failed up again first, or should I go with the one that has conceived? Personally, uh, if you don't mind me taking this one, no, not at all. Um, I would do the one that's done. Um, you already had one that's failed, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't abandon it necessarily, but once you've got a new one that's done, that and that maybe uh, has a little bit cheaper price point for your development, right, for production. Uh, run the run the fundraiser on that, and if that's successful, then rerun the old one. You are coming at it from a, from a situation where more people will know you because you have a game that has been released. Exactly. Or, or you could take the one that failed, you could release it for free in various places as an electronic product, but with no layout, right? No pictures, no text. Just the rule. I mean, text. Just just the rules. No pictures. No layout. No artwork. He's talking about a card game. Well, card game. Ah. Yeah. Maybe you could do the same thing these days. Actually. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the low uh, production value version. You know, like a a, a much cheaper like uh, stock art or what whatever version, right? And then you could come back around after some time has passed, and pe a lot of people have gotten it, and say, "I'm going to do a high quality version of this now." Yeah. That's another way Yeah. But the thing is, don't release the high quality assets yeah. for free. Hold on to that. Yeah. Hold yeah. on to that. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get what you pay for. But if you do the stuff, you do like people for stock assets for the cheaper version. Yeah. Yeah. So those, there's two ways to kind of go at it. But I would definitely say, um, in your particular situation, I would go with the one that's the newer one that's done. Try and get that. Oh, rolling. It's the older one that's done. Oh, it's the older one. That's done. Go with the older one that's done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, roll with that, and then uh, circle back to the one that failed. There's another possibility too, which is: is it is it like done, done as card game, artwork, everything done? Uh, the first one is definitely. Then how about how about instead of doing the box artwork or paying for any of that, you just put it up print on demand as a card product on drive through cards. And people can buy them one at a time, and you spend no more money on the project. You move along. Yeah, and then the thing and is, then then what you can do is a Kickstarter for the tile version. 
right? Yeah. That's the deluxe version, and that you know that may uh, actually work better because yeah. you've got people who are already playing it and who people who are like, look, I'd, I'd like a higher quality version of this. I, I enjoy it, right? So, yeah. Anyone else? So, Ma'am. I went to a panel, Publishing 101, and mm -hmm. one of the things that came up during that panel was that kickstarting your product basically alienates you to publishers in the future. And publishers or retailers? Publishers. Okay. Really? Yeah. That's where I, that's not, I have never heard that. And it sounds like you guys come from a different viewpoint. So well, what are you so is this, are, you, are we talking about card and board games, or are we talking about... Uh, it, it was mainly card and board game focused. It didn't touch on RPGs a little bit. The idea being, if you can start it, you've already sold it. Either it's successful and you've already sold it to your audience, so they don't see the point in doing more with it, or it fails, they don't know whether your product sucks or you didn't promote it. So we're possibly talking about distributors and retailers. Okay. It was uh, from actually, a publisher perspective. I think what, he's, what they're talking about is uh, if, if you want your game to be picked up by a publisher, and then you kick, and you've kickstarted oh, it yourself oh. ahead of time. Ah, I, yeah. I, this is going to sound a little crass, but, uh, but, but, but screw the other publishers. I mean, really, you've already, you've already gotten to the point where you're doing it yourself, right? I mean, what, are they, what, what do they really have to offer? And, um, and the thing is, you can always design another game that you can then sell them and you say, look, I had a successful Kickstarter on yeah. my previous game. I, I, I think, right. yeah, and we, we tend to, game designers tend to travel in schools like fish. <laughs> it's true. Right? It's the, I come from the indie school for sure. Yeah, right? and, and yeah, when, the, when you're, when, when you, you'll find yourself in a school of like-minded people sort of doing the same things and talking to each other about it. And over time, that will be other publishers you can sell other things to. And, and as a publisher, I mean, we do publish card and board games too. And uh, I don't know that we would necessarily pick up one that had already been kickstarted. Um, but if it kickstarted it really successfully, maybe I would, right? But uh, I would certainly be interested in a designer that had created something that was uh, popular enough that the Kickstarter was successful. Yeah. And a uh, future product I would certainly be looking at. And uh, to speak to the role-playing space, uh, ironically enough, another panel I attended was uh, publishing in the RPG sphere. Uh, there are a number of publishers who will look at Kickstarters that have made you know, a, good, a good amount of money, have been successful, what have you, and reach out and say, hey, do you have a publisher yet? Do you have a distributor yet? No? Well, let me hook you up because you, know, you have money and I'd like a piece of it. And I am currently working on a project, actually, it's a uh, role-playing project, but a project that was successfully kickstarted as a smaller, uh, in smaller scope, and I'm going to be republishing that um, for that, for that uh, writer. So. I'll, I'll take it one step farther. Uh, so I, I, again, I only really know about role-playing games, but I think it's applicable. If someone even failed, matter of fact, no, it's completely applicable. I have a friend who has a, a, a monster role-playing game project. It's very interesting, I won't go into details, but he already did try to kickstart it a few years ago um, and failed uh, for various reasons. I would have no problems trying it again for him, myself, because I, I don't think he handled it quite right. You know what I mean? I think the audience is there, the product is, is amazing. He just, he just didn't pull it off. He had really high financial bills. He wanted like $40,000. Yeah, that's, all, that's a big ask. Yeah, he wanted to hit a big ask. Can he hit like 32? And he was like, ah, nobody cares. Oh, my God. They really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, so 
failure isn't always failure. And failure isn't artistic failure either, just because for, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you can fail at crowdfunding. Not all of them are is the idea wasn't great, the product wasn't fine, your ideas aren't terrific. Sometimes there's yeah. other reasons things fail. Yeah. So. But yeah, for, for, to, to go back to you, do you feel like we answered your question? Or? Yeah. Okay, oh, okay, good, all right. good, all right. excellent. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, any other questions? We got about 10 minutes left, so. All right. Well. How, about, how about we do a, 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 a things you've seen you like lately? Okay. How about how we could ask the audience? All right. Anybody seen anything they like lately as far as a game? Anything that really impressed them? Here at the con. Here at the con, and or anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to start if yeah, okay. else right. has something. Um, probably the best product I've seen so far, uh, Melissa Lewis Gentry, who is, uh, one of the, is one of the folks behind Modern Myths, one of the vendors here, yeah. um, had a game she was working on called Robot Cities. Um, which deals with a city full of robots uh, in a world where humans have been gone for more than a hundred years. That's great. Now these robots have been part of a great experiment to infuse them with emotions by way of uh, connecting them with human personalities, but the experiment is done and has somehow went awry and you only have two left. The rest of them are attached to your uh, like essentially like deep storage. And so when you, you know, make a mistake or whatever, you have to vent that emotional energy somewhere, uh, which might switch out your emotions, which might do things. And then, of course, you're in a crowd of robots that have no idea what emotions are. So they do not compute, and discordance and weirdness and inter electronic interference starts screwing with people. It's genius. And it just builds and builds and builds. And if you pay attention to it, it's secretly a metaphor for toxic masculinity. Mm. Huh. <laughs> All right. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to see where that goes. I would expect nothing less from her. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Anybody else? I'll, I'll do one. Okay. Go for it. So this actually ties into your question uh, sort of before. So Blades in the Dark. I'm really, I'm really pretty enamored with Blades in the Dark. Also yes. because uh, in the tiny Nevada town on which uh, Indie Press Revolution um, locates, my gaming group really is filled with villains. Just personally. It's who they are. Playing heroes is very is a great stretch for them as human beings. So Blades in the Dark, <laughs> it, just, it just is. It just is. So Blades in the Dark is more of a natural match for the personality types involved. Um, I, I, I love the whole concept of, of one thing in game design that maybe, maybe people have done it well in places, but I've never seen it done well, is the idea of or a group of people going to do a caper or, uh, um, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go do the Mission Impossible thing. We have to go plan uh, a thing we need to go do. But, but often these role-play games break down in the planning. The planning isn't fun, right? Having group people talk around, sit around and role-play out what they're going to do when they actually role-play is not fun. Blades in the Dark, like, eliminates that by making it all re having a retroactive system where you retroactively fill in the blanks of all the planning you did. It's just, it's, it's genius. Well, and and it was a project that succeeded on Kickstarter, but that Evil Hat picked up from the from the person that succeeded and, and finished. Yeah. Um, because I, I don't actually know what problems he was having, if, having, if any. I'll, but I'll tell you what the problems were. He's he's one guy. Okay. And his Kickstarter was uh, hugely successful, okay. and he Victim kind of didn't success. know yeah. what to do. Right. So he went to a publisher. Uh, Fred knows Fred knows layout and books. Fred knows they yes. know what to do. They yeah, it's a beautiful do. little book. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I th I think it's a good time to wrap yeah. up. So, okay. Thank you very um, much. Thank everybody. you all. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I hope it was useful. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen.